0: Good morning, Christ Bible Church. Good morning. It's a wonderful day uh, to gather as God's people to uh, read his word. As Chuck mentioned earlier, we are uh, this week and next week uh, going through the book of Jude, uh, a book that uh, some of you may be familiar with, many of you uh, probably not as much. It's one of the more neglected books as as far as preaching goes uh, because it contains uh, some fantastic stories. Uh, that aren't in the Bible, and uh, requires a lot of work to deal with that. Uh, But it is God's Word, and we think it's worth going through. And so we're going to talk about Jude 1 through 16 today, about what God has to teach us and say to us, and about how to deal even with Scripture, uh, when Scripture quotes things that aren't Scripture, uh, as we will see. Uh, But let's read Jude 1 through 16 together uh, as we hear the Word of the Lord. Jude. Relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand Instinctively, woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea. "'Casting up the foam of their own shame, "'wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness "'has been reserved forever. "'It was also about these that Enoch, "'the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, "'Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones "'to execute judgment on all "'and to convict all, the ungodly of their, all their deeds of ungodliness "'that they have committed in such an ungodly way.'" and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that equips your word, that edifies your word that strengthens us to contend for the faith that was delivered once and for all. And so Lord, we confess, we come to this text this morning, Jude. It contains stories we're not familiar with. It contains all sorts of things that might raise questions in it, but we know it is your word. We know it is your inspired scripture, and we trust that it will equip us and prepare us that we might pursue all righteousness. Lord, let us as your people not fall sway to false teaching, Lord, nor be people who promote false teaching. But Lord, might you build up your church here, Christ Bible Church, into a group of people who hold fast to the faith that was delivered once and for all. Might you keep our theology pure, might you keep our conduct pure, might you keep our church pure. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, a few moments ago, Jude is one of the most neglected books in the New Testament, while also being one of the shortest. The Greek text has only 461 words in it. Indeed, the introduction that I'm going to give you to this text will be longer than the entire book of Jude. But what do we see? Well, Jude opens up. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Who is this man? Well, the James mentioned is almost certainly James, the brother of Jesus, which by extension that means what is Jude. He is also a brother of Jesus. They have family relations. James uh, has a significant position in the church in Jerusalem. He's very well known, and we can assume that. Jude, being James's brother, would also have been well-known in the church because of his family connections and reputation, so no greater identification is necessary. He is Jude, the brother of James. He speaks with authority. The letter itself is written sometime in the 60s as the Christian community has been growing and yet under threat from false teachers that are beginning to teach an alternate gospel, one that is significant enough that both Peter and Jude write to address the same issue, to warn this church from accepting what is being taught. This false teaching, as we went through 2 Peter and you all saw, was one that taught an unrestricted appetite for pleasure, engaging in a lifestyle that promoted many sins as acceptable simply because they were pleasurable, engaging in a lifestyle that simply was full of sin. Jude's favorite designation for these people in his letter is simply godless. He calls them this three times in his short letter. One of the main features of Jude and the opposition he's describing is something to, to grab onto this morning, and it's this. It's the inseparable marriage between bad theology and bad morals. A bad theology, a bad understanding of God, of scripture, of Jesus, of a whole range of things, almost certainly leads to bad moral living. If a Christian behaves badly, it's usually either because they have not understood the Bible properly, or two, understanding the Bible and what it teaches, they refuse to accept it as authority in their lives. They go on to do what makes them happy or what satisfies them. Judas is seeking to set the church straight and to keep them from following this false gospel that he makes very clear does not lead to liberation, but condemnation and destruction on par with some of the most notorious stories in all of Scripture. After establishing his credentials here in the first few verses, he notes the issue at hand. The gospel that was delivered once and for all is under threat because there have been people that have crept into this church that promote a godless life. They've even been given some type of authority in this church as teachers, which is why in verse 12 he refers to them as shepherds who feed themselves. The faith that was delivered once and for all has now been supplemented by some type of new teaching that is enticing people to sin at the hand of these people, which is how Jude will refer to them in verses 8 to 16. After setting the tone, though, and making his concern apparent and imploring these people to contend for the faith, Jude moves towards discussing just what is at stake with this false teaching. And the first point he makes in his letter to us is simple. He wants to remind the believers that those who reject God will ultimately perish. He does this in verses 5 through 7. He wants us to know that it's a serious thing to reject God and rebel against his order. In order to make this clear, he cites three examples from Jewish history. The the story of the Exodus, the story of the rebellious angels, and finally the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. By connecting these stories to his letter, he ensures that the church and those that are reading his letter see the dangerous waters that they are swimming in. These stories were not only well known... But these three stories, and probably why he chose these three, three stories, appeared or are referenced in many books of Jewish history and tradition, such as the Syriac, the Maccabees, the Testament of Nephtali, and the Mishnah. You probably have not heard of any of these books. Uh, they're Jewish historical books or mythology books, uh, but, and they are not scripture, but they hold much of the story and theology of the Jewish people in Jesus' time and day, the same time and day that the letter is being received by these people. Uh, it's clear that Jude chooses these stories because they're well-known and almost immediately recognizable to his audience. Further, these three stories almost always appear in connection in these different pieces of Jewish history. And so by choosing these three stories together, he is immediately connecting with things that these people would have learned uh, as young children or in, in the Jewish tradition, and is going to bring their attention very quickly Jude is a very aggressive writer. He uses a lot of analogies, like one after the other after the other. Uh, And in doing so, he's trying to bring lots of imagery into these people's lives to understand just how serious what is happening really is. It's a serious thing to reject God and to rebel against his order. They know this from these stories. What is known? Those who refuse to obey God suffer ruin. And it's a special note, I believe, uh, how Jude cites his first story there in verse 5. Let me read it for you again. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who do not believe. What is the Exodus story? God's people are in captivity. They're in Egypt. They're enslaved. They cry out to God. God sends Moses who's going to rescue these people out of Egypt, lead them to the promised land in Canaan. They're finally going to inherit the promise of their father Abraham. Life is going to be good. But what happens to these people? They get rescued, they leave Egypt, they doubt God. Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan, what do they see? Everything is even better than we could imagine, the most massive grapes you could ever see. Everything's really good, except the people there, they're really massive too, Uh, and so we're not gonna go will certainly die, will suffer ruin. They refuse to believe and go into this land that God has promised to them. They have seen God work and yet refuse to have faith that he indeed will deliver on his promise. But why does he use this story? And why does he say Jesus saved these people out of Egypt? Indeed, the Jewish audience would have readily said the Lord, even though Moses is the one that led them out of Egypt, they knew that it was the Lord who led them out of Egypt. The Lord was their salvation, and yet now Jude is taking this same story, but instead of saying the Lord, meaning God the Father, he uses Jesus. Jesus saved these people out of Egypt. Why does Jude do this? Well, already here, he's correcting a type of misunderstanding, a bad theology, that's probably being taught by some of these false teachers. Jesus is not really divine. He's not fully divine. He's not really God. There's God, God, and then there's Jesus. Uh, this is uh, some of a heresy that exists even to this day. Uh, there is a pastor that I knew. Uh, got in a Twitter fight about four or five years ago with somebody, arguing on Twitter, uh, claiming that Jesus didn't exist in the Old Testament. Uh, I would point him to Jude and say, Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. Why is Jude doing this? He's trying to help people have a good theology of Christ, a Christology, one that understands that Jesus is indeed eternal, Jesus is indeed God. He's using this story, even though he's trying to highlight the judgment that these people receive for not having faith, to even correct a misunderstanding about who Jesus is uh, and what he has truly done. And so he says, Jesus saved these people out of Egypt. But even more, I believe that Jude sees the Exodus account as a uh, a foreshadow of the Christian life. And indeed, Christianity is a type of new Exodus, where many of the current believers are in danger of the same faith as those who suffered when they escaped Egypt. Jesus had rescued these people out of captivity on the cross. On the cross, he pays the price for sin. On the cross, he rescues these people from certain punishment, from death. And yet, knowing that what Jesus has done, hearing the gospel truth, these people refuse to have faith. They don't trust in Jesus. They don't trust in God. And he is saying, if you abandon Jesus, if you don't have faith in him, this same destruction is what is going to come to you. And Jude knows, sadly, that there's many Christians in the church, both then and even now today, who do not trust in Jesus to truly provide for them, and thus they have eyes to wander towards other people, things, or teachings for hope. He calls on these people to turn and trust in Jesus, the one who saves, that they might not be subject to eternal punishment. So what is the danger in this judgment? Jude moves to this next section with a repeated phrase in verses 8 through 16 of these people. And he opens by tying these people to those who had previously rebelled. These are not just people promoting bad theology. They're a people who are rebelling against God's established order, refusing to follow him as Lord and submit to his reign and regulations. And in this section, 8 through 16, he gives us five ways this type of rebellious teaching begins to take hold. He does this by mentioning these people uh, over and over, referring to these false teachers and the kind of rebellion that they are promoting. This is where we'll spend most of our time the rest of this morning and with what I believe are five reminders that Jude gives us. What are they? Jude reminds us, one, that we reject God when we reject God's word. We reject God when we reject God's word. Two, we reject God when we reject God's judgment. Three, we reject God when we are led by our own desires. Four, those who reject God not only destroy themselves, but destroy those around them. And five, no amount of pleasure will ever bring satisfaction. So let's start with this first one. In verse eight, Jude reminds us that we reject God when we reject God's word. What's he say? In like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. What are these dreams? Who are these dreamers? What does that have to do with rejecting God's word? You might say, I'm a dreamer. Am I in danger? I would say if you dream about any Arizona team ever doing anything significant in sports, the only danger you are in is danger of disappointment. Uh, but if you're saying, well, I'm a dreamer, I have a dream board, and i try to map out you know, what I want to do in my job. I have objectives. That's not the kind of dream that Jude is alluding to here. What is a dreamer? A dreamer or a dreamer of dreams in the Old Testament is one who claims to have a message from God. Some dreamers have true words from God, but many more have false ones. And they are dealt with very severely because they tell lies about God. And it looks as if this issue is the issue that is facing Jude, and it's this. Under the cloak of a pretend revelation from God, people have crept into the church and assumed positions of authority. And there's a reminder here that we should be diligent in knowing his God, that, or knowing God's word, that we might test everything that comes out of the mouth of teachers. You might say, "Do people like this still exist today? Yes. There are people who still claim to have new visions, new revelations, and they are allowed to teach. They teach on TV. They teach on YouTube. They have all kinds of platforms saying, I received a vision from the Lord and he wants me to have a jet. Pony up the money, people. Right? You laugh. This happened just a few years ago. These people still exist today claiming a revelation from God, that God has said something to them or revealed something to them, and if you disagree with these people, you are disagreeing with God himself. And we should be reminded that we need to test everything with Scripture. Scripture is God's revelation. Scripture is what God gives us to keep us grounded, and Scripture is what will help us determine if when people say, I have a revelation from the Lord, if they belong outside in the asylum, uh, or if they have something perhaps worth listening to. Furthermore, we need to respond to these people with extreme skepticism. When people claim to have a word from the Lord, we shouldn't say, oh, what is it? Right? We should first say, oh, really? Like, that's interesting. Uh, how did you get this word? What were you doing when you got this word? Uh, we should respond with questions, Uh, and then take it to Scripture and see if God indeed has revealed something to them, or if indeed God has not, which is most likely the case. We must remember, as Jude has reminded us, that the faith was delivered once and for all, and that any modification to it to make our lives more convenient or to accommodate cultural norms should be rejected. If somebody has something that's new and it contradicts Scripture, they need to be cast out and their teaching needs to be cast out. These dreamers, as Jude refers to them, only offer invented revelation from God. They have a revelation from God that backs up whatever choice they are about to make. And this revelation is more important and supersedes scripture. Their dream is the higher standard of living, not God's word. And so they make this claim and they not only lie about God, but they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. You say, what does it mean to blaspheme the glorious ones? This is one of those weird words in Jude. It's possible that these people were insulting angels or denying their existence, but I believe if we look at the context of Jude when he writes here that they blaspheme the glorious one, he's probably referring to the tradition that God's law was given at Mount Sinai to Moses by angels. He's alluding to the fact that these dreamers reject the moral law of God that was given to Moses Uh, And in doing so, they blasphemed this tradition, this this way of thinking of those that brought God's law to God's people. It's highlighted by the connection these dreamers have to defiling the flesh. An allusion, almost certainly, to the perversion of those from Sodom and Gomorrah. Clear lines were given in scripture regarding homosexual activity, but these dreamers claim to have a better revelation than the one given by God, which clearly condemns such a practice. Simply put, these people, these dreamers, reveal to us that like false teachers, we reject God when we reject his word. But you sit here and say, that's not me. I don't reject his word. I try to obey. But all too often in the modern day, we have these kinds of dreamers in our lives. Sometimes the dreamers that say, God gave me a vision of having a jet. But most of the time, it's saying, well, I, you know, God given me, you know, I thought about this and And he really revealed to me that I should pursue this. Uh, This is an excuse that you hear from time to time of men leaving their wives to be with other men. God gave me this desire. I, I needed to do this. I prayed about it and I really felt God just saying, go do it, like I made you this way. And they do this and they act on these things. A major sign of the presence of this type of thinking, these dreamers within our church, is a loosening of sexual morality and the acceptance of behavior that other generations of Christians would have found impossible to justify. Right? If you think, am I really in danger of this? Uh, think about sexual ethic, maybe that you've adopted in your own life. Uh, go ask, your, if you're younger, uh, go ask your grandfather about it. Say, hey, this is what my friends are doing. What do you think about that, Grandpa? He's probably not going to think highly of it, uh, and he is not that much older than you. Uh, if you go back 100, 200 years, many of the things that the Christian church has allowed or said are okay now, uh, even from the way that people dress, uh, would be simply abhorrent to those. Uh, the, the way that Christians soft play even things like pornography in today's day and age would be abhorrent Uh, to those Christians of previous generations would find it impossible for any Christian to justify using these kinds of things and yet in our church today we have people who say like it's not that big of a deal those are just cultural things that God didn't want us to do we're in a different age we're enlightened we have more things God has blessed us with shouldn't we enjoy them but Jude warns us don't follow the path of these dreamers if you reject God's word you are rejecting God But he's not warning us just against these dreamers, but also against those who assume God's role as the judge. And so the second thing Jude reminds us of is that we reject God when we reject his judgment. In verse nine, Jude is alluding to a story lost to history that we only have a partial manuscript of, a story called The Assumption of Moses. It's a strange story, a story written uh, most likely around the time that Jesus was born. It's not a historical document, uh, but it adds some mythology to the end of Moses' life. If you're not familiar with the end of Moses' life, he goes up on a mountain, the Israelites go to the promised land, he's looking out, and uh, he's just kind of gone. We don't know. Joshua is now leading the people of Israel. Moses, has, his story has ended. These stories add mythology, or what you know? how is Moses' life after this? Uh, and so they make up fantastic stories about it. And this story... Uh, goes along a debate between Satan and the archangel Michael after Moses dies and he's there on the mountain. What's what's happening? Well, Satan comes and he says, Moses is mine, he belongs to me, I'm taking him uh, to hell. The archangel says, no, he belongs to God, I'm taking him to heaven. And there is an argument about this, about whether Moses gets to go to heaven or hell. Satan presumes judgment on Moses And the best guess is this judgment is based on the fact that Moses was a murderer. If you go back to the story in Exodus 2, Moses kills an Egyptian after he's beating an Israelite. And so Moses gets uh, labeled as a murderer, and so when he dies, Satan says, He's mine. There's no redemption for him. He is going to hell. Uh, We know this is not true. If you just go to the New Testament, you see a story that has Moses appear uh, to Jesus on a mountain uh, with Elijah. And you say, okay, he's clearly not in hell. Uh, So this story we don't have to worry about, Uh, but that's besides the fact, Uh, this story is highlighted by Jude uh, to show that what are these false teachers doing? God is the one who judges, and yet these false teachers like Satan have put themselves in the position of judge. They are the arbitrators of who is forgiven and who is punished, who receives heaven, who will receive hell. It's necessary for us to take a moment here uh, as many of you are saying, okay, what is why is Jude quoting this? What is going on that Jude is quoting a story that's not historical, not in the Bible, and was created sometime around the same time this letter is being written? First, I want to say there is nothing unusual with biblical writers referring to or quoting books that aren't in our Bible. This one kind of screams at us because it's such a strange story. But if we took time and we read through the Bible, we would find in the Old Testament references to books like the book of the wars of the Lord, the records of Nathan the prophet, and of Gab the seer, the annuals of the kings of Israel, and the annuals of the kings of Judah. Furthermore, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul even quotes the pagan Greek writers Cleanthes, Aretas, and Menander. The Bible quotes things that are not in the Bible. It should not surprise us or, or alarm us that the Bible refers to something that's not in the Bible. Secondly, a general use of a tradition is not the same thing as accepting every detail of this tradition. As Jude is writing and dealing with uh, this story here in the Assumption of Moses, and then we'll get to uh, v- uh, later on in, in the book, verse 14, I believe, uh, he references the book of Enoch. He is very careful uh, to do nothing that contradicts Scripture, Just because Jude draws from these books and the stories that these people would have known doesn't mean that Jude views them as scripture, uh, nor should we question the validity of Jude just because he references or uses them. Finally, there's no reason to say that because Jude mentions these works outside of scripture that Jude is taking the content of these books as historical fact. As I noted at the very beginning, Jude is alluding as he writes this to very well-known stories that certainly resonate with his readers. These books, written centuries after the authors that share their names, provide a look into the theological framework that shaped early Jewish culture and by extension had shaped many of the people in the church prior to their conversion. You can go online and read the book of Enoch. I read the book of Enoch this week. It's weird. I wouldn't recommend it, You'll probably be more confused than, than when you started. Uh, but we can read these books and not be scared of them while also saying these books are not scripture. They do not have the authority of God. They do not need to necessarily be believed. So why is Jude using this story, and what is he saying? He is saying that just as you guys believe these stories, this tradition that you have so gladly accepted, uh, the devil, just like these false teachers, has assumed the role as judge. He's usurped God's righteous rule. He is the one who is going to determine who is punished or forgiven, uh, and these false teachers have done the same. They presume to be the authority of the one who determines who and what is condemned and who and what is forgiven. What Jude is bringing out is a tendency for those who are the enemies of God, who reject God, to ultimately reject God's authority. How can you identify somebody? How do you know if you're even in danger of this? Are you rejecting God's place as the arbiter of justice? Or are you saying, God really wouldn't do that. He really wouldn't punish us for that. He wouldn't give me this desire if he didn't want me to partake in it. But we should be reminded, as Jude points us to, that only God has the ability to condemn and only God has the ability to pardon. Jude knows that false teachers have been themselves declaring what is condemned to be pure and what is pure to be condemned. And he reminds us that we should not take the posture of allowing God, or that we should take the posture of allowing God to be the judge and letting God determine what is right and not right, not ourselves, nor other teachers. And in this well-known story where the devil is contending to be the judge of Moses' soul, not God, he is reminding us that this is a type of rebellion. You do not determine who is saved and not saved. These false teachers do not get to determine what is true or not true, what is allowed or not allowed. It is only God who is the judge. If somebody rejects God's judgment, they are rejecting God. They are against him, and they seek to undermine his rule. But moving on, the third thing these people remind us of is the foolishness of following our heart. In verses 10 and 11, what do these people do? They seek what seems right to them. They follow their instincts rather than what God has revealed or pronounced. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture. You go to Genesis 3. What happens? There's this lady. She's in a garden. She's next to this tree. It's a good-looking tree. She looks at this fruit, and she says, that's some good-looking fruit. I think I'm going to eat that fruit. Her husband's like, that's not the fruit we should eat. This is a paraphrase for anything you say right? And uh, there's a serpent. He says, well, did God really say you sh- you, you'll die? Did he say, really say you shouldn't eat the tree? She looks at the fruit, and she goes, that fruit is really desirable. I'm going to eat that fruit. She takes the fruit. She eats it. What happens? Humanity's cursed. Thanks a lot, right? This is the oldest sin in the book, to look at things that look desirable to us, to let our hearts be the rule and not God. To say, I know God, you said this, but you know, I, if I had this desire, then you know, I must. You must want me to do this. You must want me to satisfy it. What happens when people satisfy their own desires and let their desires be their rule? Humanity faces judgment over and over and over. Judah's saying that if people give into a life that says do what makes you happy, the outcome for their life is certain, it's destruction. He cites three examples here. Cain in Genesis chapter four, we're not gonna talk about them, but I'm gonna give you the uh, references so you can go and read them if you want later. They're great, fascinating stories that would illuminate. Uh, Jude for you here. Cain, Genesis four, Balaam, Numbers 22 to 24, and then again in verse, or chapter 31 when Moses provides some clarity on Balaam and what he actually did. And finally, Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. These stories are all stories of people whose greed proves too much for them to overcome. Desiring to keep things or gain things for themselves, it eventually leads them to rebel against God and what God has required of them for their own gain. The end of them is destruction, and the rebellion against, of Korah is perhaps the most dramatic judgment, which Jude loves dramatic things, uh, as one where the earth opens up and swallows up a whole group of people. Uh, in number 16, People who follow their own desires, let what they want determine what they should do, uh, face this destruction. Judah's saying that this teaching that's being promoted, this thing that you're perhaps starting to dabble with, it might sound desirable, it might promise to satisfy, it might promise to give you a fulfilled life, but at the end, it's foolishness. When people follow what seems right in their own hearts to them and disregard what God has commanded, it ruins them. It's a failure to understand that inside our hearts are deceitful. They've been corrupted by sin, and they will always lead us to sin. We will be destroyed by our own instincts, becoming enslaved to that which promises freedom. Judas saying, don't give in to your desires. These false teachers, this thing that being taught is foolishness. If you follow your heart, you will be destroyed. Follow God's revelation his word, his commands. But then he moves on, and he reminds us that those who reject God not only destroy themselves, but destroy those around them. This is verses 12 through 15. He opens it up this way. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Why all of these analogies? Jude is trying to help us and these readers understand that these people that they've allowed into leadership in their churches, these people who are promoting these false things will shipwreck them. They are hidden reefs. And as this boat gets clearer or clearer, they will hit it and it will sink them. And he gives a whole bunch of different analogies about ways that these people who should be providing for you are not. They are clouds that have no water. They are trees that have no fruit. They are shepherds who give the flock no food only feeding themselves. They are wayward stars. Why this stars? This is navigation. And at that time, they didn't have iPhones and GPS. They could just punch in an address and blindly look at their phone while they drive and cut everybody off. Right? They had to look at the stars for navigation. And so these wandering stars, planets, would throw people off. They would think it's the North Star, but it might be Jupiter. And they're going to end up someplace way different than what they planned when they were heading out on their journey. Now, this are the false teachers. Give enough time, they will pull you into the reef, they will sink you, they will destroy you. Why bring this up? Jude understands the tendency for Christians to explain away those who we know to be damaging to our faith. Those who believe false things, who wanna teach false things, but we say they're such nice people. Or even worse, we say, well I know they have some weird beliefs, but they're just a really good speaker. I really enjoy listening to their sermons. And so we go on YouTube and we watch their sermons and and we see what they're teaching. And Judah's saying, give it enough time, these people will destroy you. Don't let them in. Don't allow yourself to be influenced by those who will lead you, not in the path of life, but in the path of destruction. And those of us who are parents. This should be a strong reminder to us to think hard about who and what we are letting influence our kids. They will believe almost anything. We need to be careful about what we allow to shape and influence our kids as we're raising them. But this section concludes again with another connection to literature outside of Scripture. The book of Enoch. And while in verse 14 as he's quoting this, uh, the prophecy is altogether unremarkable. This is a prophecy. What is it about? It's about God returning to judge rebellious people. This is something that is over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's over and over in the New Testament. Uh, It's attested in Scripture. And we might read this and say, of course God's going to return. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to judge those who rebel. What's surprising as we read this is that Jude is quoting a prophecy from a book that, as far as I know, no religious group ever has considered to be Scripture. Scripture. Why Jude uses this story and cites this prophecy, it's unknown. It could be because uh, those he's rebuking don't believe in Scripture, and thus Jude is now referencing and appealing to a work that they valued for its mystical stories, thus using something that these false teachers treasured against them in order to rebuke them from spreading this false gospel. Regardless of this reason, I must say again, as I said earlier, citing a quotation from another source does not indicate that that work is inspired even if the saying drawn upon it is true. For example, Paul quoted Eretus in Acts 17, 28, and he surely did not intend to teach that that entire work of Aratus, the Greek poet, was inspired scripture. Just because Jude quotes this should not cause us to be alarmed. He uses this because it's a story that is familiar with these people to help drive home a point that those who rebel against God will be judged by Jesus. But finally, he turns to this very last uh, verse in 16 when he says, these people again, these are, who are they? They are grumblers, they are malcontents, they are following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. These people remind us that no amount of pleasure will ever bring satisfaction. They remind us that a life under our rule, not God's rule, can never truly satisfy. Further, it should be a reminder to us that those who reject God can never be satisfied. We can't give them just a little bit to appease them. They will take more and more until they consume you and destroy you. Ultimately, a life of rejecting God will lead to a life that can never satisfy. These false teachers are like toddlers. Those of you that have young kids, you know, they are the greatest uh, people at getting what they want. Why? Because they are relentless. Right? They have no end, That I have all day to whine about getting this cookie. And if I have to sit here and ask you every five minutes for a cookie, I will until I get that cookie. And you know what? It's effective. Uh, My daughter usually gets uh, things I break down after a long time like, fine, just have a cookie, go away. But what happens as parents? What do we do? We give them the cookie, what do they come back? Five minutes later, Dad, I want another cookie. No, you're not getting another cookie. And then the cycle repeats. No amount of getting what we desire will ever bring satisfaction. No amount of cookies for a four-year-old will ever be enough cookies. They will eat and eat and eat and still want more cookies. It can't actually satisfy them. Jude is telling us this morning, no amount of pleasure will ever bring you satisfaction. False teachers promise freedom but they are captive to their own desires. They are gaining more and more and more, and yet they never find satisfaction. This is what they're teaching you. This is what they're encouraging you to do. Jude is saying, don't believe them, reject them. That's a life that is certain ruin. These people pursued pleasure by seeking to fulfill their own desires rather than thinking about what they should do as teachers to strengthen others. They're grumblers, grumblers, never happy, they're malcontents, always complaining. Nothing's ever going to make them happy, and yet they continue in the same false belief to try and find purpose and satisfaction through pleasure. They gain more and more, but it proves to never satisfy. Jude warns us against following such a lifestyle. A few points of application as we read, as we leave this morning. First, what resources do you have to test teachings or revelations or dreams so that you know they are in line with scripture. Are you familiar with the faith delivered once and for all? Do you know the creeds of the faith? The Nicene Creed, the Apostles Creed, the Chalcedonian Creeds that were given to the church so that they might affirm the things that were taught and delivered once and for all to protect the church from false teachings. The line of church that I grew up in, we had one creed, and it was this, no creed but Christ. You're like, Isn't that a creed? Like, don't ask questions. No creed but Christ. You don't need to read the Nicene Creed. You don't need to read the Apostles' Creed. You don't need to read the Chalcedonian Creeds. What happened? Well, I went off to Bible college, and what was I taught? Heresy. And I had no idea. Why? Because I was never taught the things that would contend once and for all. The faith. I didn't have the guardrails. We in our lives need to be careful that we know the guardrails, that we know the faith delivered once and for all, to know the faith that has stood for all time so that we don't fall to false teachings. Read them this week. Read the Nicene Creed by yourself or if you have a family, with your family. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to read. Two, what does your lifestyle say about your theology? Bad theology will lead to bad morals. What does your lifestyle say about what you believe about God and what you believe about his word? And finally, where in your life do you see a tendency to operate like false teachers? Is it in a leniency with God's word? Is it to be, a, to be a, and desire uh, to be the one who declares judgment on others? Is it to desire to determine what is right for yourself? What do you find an inclination in your heart most for? And how might you pray that God would strengthen you through his spirit to trust in him and to let him be the sovereign Lord and to make you submit to him and to understand his rule in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your righteous word, the inerrant scripture handed down to us that we might know you, that we might see you, that we might hear you. Father, we know that there's a temptation for us to pursue things that make us happy, to pursue desires that uh, we know are contrary to Your Word, and we pray, Lord, that You would give us the strength to not give in to them, but to stand strong. Lord, let us let our theology drive our morals, and let not our morals drive our theology. We want to be a people who submit to You, to Your authority, to Your judgment to your word, let us not get caught in the trap of pursuing satisfaction and purpose through pleasure, but instead find our purpose in knowing you and walking for you. We ask that you would work in our hearts to correct us, Lord. Work in our hearts to help us identify unhelpful people that we've maybe allowed to to teach us. Lord, whether that's in person or even through programs, through podcasts, through videos. Lord, we don't want to be susceptible to false teaching we desire for our church to be a church that is pure who keeps good theology who wants to know you and know your word and is committed to the authority of your word lord help us to become that church help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our knowledge of your word that we might not fall in judgment lord we thank you for all that you do we thank you for christ who is our lord and savior who is the one and the only one that we trust in for salvation. To him be the glory this morning. Amen.